1: Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. We all know that the world of AI is rapidly changing. What is less obvious are the ways in which we change with it. In this talk, complex systems expert and pioneer the world's first empathic technology, Fotini Markopoulou, explores how we co-evolve with our technologies, and what this means as we build a new world of ai and emotion technology otini markopoulou Kalamara is a greek theoretical physicist interested in quantum gravity foundational mathematics and quantum mechanics but she is also a design engineer working on embodied cognition technologies and is the co-founder and ceo of empathic technologies if you enjoyed today's episode Don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome Fotini Markopoulou to Philosophy for Our Times.
0: Hi, welcome, I'm Fotini Markopoulou. I want to talk about uh, technology and what makes us human and what would technologies that enhance our human side may be like in the future in this environment uh, that is dominated by technology that we live in. So I guess I'll start with why I love technology. It's actually a very core thing to what we are as an animal. We are this special animal that makes tools we make technology, we always have. And the thing is that the tools always changes. So when we first made tools to kill animals or make more tools with, that's how we evolved thumbs so that we could use our tools better. And it's always been like that. We co-evolved with our tools. The technology evolves, we change with it. When we think about technology, we tend to think of our phone or the electronic stuff that we use, or maybe a power plant. But pretty much everything that we make, that we design, is technology. The tools is what sometimes is called physical technologies, is different ways that we organize matter into forms that we can use for a certain purpose. But we also create social technologies, ways to organize ourselves for a purpose, whether that is a tribe that grows stuff or hunts stuff, or a tribe that creates new software, a supermarket. There is a patent for the first supermarket where you go around and pick up your own groceries and then you take them to checkout. These are all technologies, ways that we organize ourselves or we organize the world around us. So technologies are in layers down to governance and culture. These are all forms of technologies and they all interact with each other. And through this process, we change in many levels, from actually physiologically changing to how we interact with each other and how we think of ourselves. So in some sense, that has always happened. And there is a lot to be said about the argument that major changes have happened before. They can look scary. They can look amazing. We have, at least in some areas of our life, we have technologies where the power of the technology is similar, so the same order of magnitude as our own. AI has, of course, its limitations. I'm not going to talk about AI and what it can do. I'm going to focus on what it might mean when you have technologies whose, if you like, cognitive power is similar to ours and what consequence or what choices might we have in that landscape. That is the basic question. You sometimes have to stop a little bit and think, with the stuff that we are making, since we're always co-evolving with this, what is it that we will co-evolve to with the technologies that we are creating? And sometimes, especially in the space that I work in, there is this cyborg-y vision of ourselves in the future where, I don't know, we plug in devices or machines. Uh, I mean, I'm already enhancing my brain with Google, It knows so much more than I do. I don't need to remember where anything is because Google Maps is going to tell me. So these are all extensions of our cognitive powers. Are we going to be evolving in the cyborg direction or what? And in some sense, when we create technologies, we are the creator. And the question is an old one. Are we going to make machines, tools in our image? Or are we going to worship the machines and try to make ourselves in the image of the machines because they seem so incredibly powerful? So is this going to be a future of human-like machines or machine-like humans? Now, one of the things that is, I think, psychologically very attractive to the data science and the idea that some machine somewhere can crunch insane amount of data and give us answers is the context, is the world that we live in. We are hyper-connected, we are always on, and the world seems to just be more and more messy. It's harder to make sense of it everything is changing all the time the future of work is unclear the there's economic and social uncertainty a lot does not make sense i have a complex systems background and i might just say well it's a complex system and at this point it's highly interacting but actually most of the time it just looks confusing and so in this environment is not a huge surprise that we feel out of balance uh mental health problems are going through the roof seems like we want to get a grip on things or somebody to give us some answers. And there's a funny way in which personal tech has inserted itself in this. But one should look at what has actually happened. The key driver behind most personal tech that we interact with is optimization. That means that the algorithms that go through what are the new features to add to a tech that a human interacts with, optimize for how much time somebody spends using it because that generally translates into dollars. In fact, the key driver always is optimizing for dollars. And in this process, a strange thing has happened. The science of behavioral psychology came in and gave answers on how to tweak or design, create technology that attracts people's attention. The book, Hooked by Nir Eyal, was incredibly influential. And when it came out, it was like, oh my God, it's amazing. You know, there's all these things that you can put in your solutions so that people get hooked. It actually says it on the front page, how to build habit forming products. It seemed like a great idea because you can build gamification, you can build ways to grab people's attention, and then they keep using your product. Now, a little bit few years later, we realized that actually hooked actually meant hooked. What these products do is literally they hijack your reward system, your attention. Physiologically, it's just like addiction. You get dopamine spikes and you're addicted to the loops of the dopamine spikes. So these are electronic addictions. At this point, we all know this. It's important to remember that actually optimization for attention is still the main driver behind most of uh, the personal technologies that you have. Now that we know it, what do we do? Depends uh, what your life is like. So if you're lucky enough to be able to have the time and mental space to do it, you can do digital detoxes and you can meditate and you can have your space for yourself and your children away from the technologies that try to grab you, to hijack you. But most people are not in this universe. The my solution is more tech, which now is trying to make up for the other tech. I'm not completely sure how it works. The way it works really is that we have figured out by looking at the elite that meditation, for example, is a wonderful thing, but most of us have no time. In the morning, I have to get the kid out of school, I have emails to go through. There's just a huge amount of stuff. The idea that I'm going to do this, is just not going to happen. So you have five-minute meditations, anytime, anywhere. And what you get is another addictive mechanism that tracks whether you have meditated today, you have moved today, you have slept well, and you are building yourself in this direction of a life well-tracked. So you have to stick your Fitbits and sleep trackers and all the technology that you can possibly afford that is going to tell you how well you're doing And it will give you answers such as today you are 75% of what is not clear. Somehow your life experience can fit in a line and because it's data, it has authority. So it tells you who you are today. And I guess it encourages you through some gamification process to be maybe at 85% tomorrow. So this is the whole thing about tracking and optimization. This is a major Silicon Valley philosophy of what you can't improve, what you cannot measure. Now, apply to life, it's a little bit funny because most of the important things in life you cannot measure. So you end up measuring whatever you can and then you optimize your life in that direction. And I particularly like this one because you know if you go for gamification, you might as well do it for everything. So you can have um, streaks of how many days in a row did you connect with God. Now, the thing is that it's worth looking a little bit more carefully at where optimization comes from. It's a bit more than 100 years old, and it started with Taylor. It's often referred to as Taylorism. What happened is that with the Industrial Revolution, when you started having people working in factories, what you wanted to do is actually have inter- interchangeable workers. So you wanted to box what everybody's tasks were, and make sure that they were as efficient as possible, then optimize the efficiency of your workers in the production line. Basically optimization is 100% about being a cog in the machine. Now, it's a little bit of a funny thing for optimization to be driving so much of what is supposed to make us better as people, especially as we are facing automation, where pretty much anything where you're a cog in the machine It's just a matter of time before it's just taken over by a machine, because they're actually better at being machines than we are. So we are really optimizing ourselves to irrelevance if what you want is to be a better cog in the machine. And at that point, maybe it's worth going, hold on, pause at this point. Okay, if the job is to absorb as much data as possible, crunch it as quickly as possible, and get to an answer, then probably AI does it quite well. But that's not really what we do as humans. We actually have two cognitive systems. There is a rational one, and then there's the emotional one. The rational is one that, to some extent, AI can take over some of those jobs. The emotional one is actually key. It's not about, you know am I having an emotional experience? That is one aspect of it. But basic things like decision-making, especially in the face of ambiguity, is actually down to your emotional system. That's um, groundbreaking research by Damasio and others about you now 20 years ago, where people that do have damage that inhibits their emotions from functioning properly, It's not that they make bad decisions. They make no decisions. And in fact, this is what happens when you try to incorporate AI, say, in the workings of a corporation or government and so on. You can crunch the numbers. The crunching of the numbers gives you some other numbers, but it doesn't actually give you a decision. The decision-making happens either in a system external to what the AI plugs in, or somebody just gives the numbers and then they make a decision. And the two things can be quite separate. So decision-making has everything to do with your emotional system, which seems to be able to parse through an insane amount of information in a different way. The important thing with information and data is to decide which information and which data is the relevant one for your problem. For most uh, real-life situations, there is a lot of ambiguity, and it's very difficult to decide what is the relevant information. turns out that... Our emotional system has been honed through evolution for millennia to actually do that. It is super powerful in that sense. And a machine is not getting there anytime soon at all. Also, when you, it comes to emotional resilience, staying cool under pressure, that's all part of your emotional system. Super important also is collaboration and cooperation, which is based on empathy. Harari makes the point that what makes the the real power of humans is that we can cooperate. That is very non-trivial, and it completely does not work without a functioning empathy and emotional system. Now, in the last uh, 10-15 years, there's been a remarkable progress in the understanding of emotions. Interestingly, most of that cognitive system is actually from the neck down. We tend to think that all the interesting stuff that is about us being human is in the brain, but actually the whole body is your emotional cognitive system. Your emotions live in your body. And in particular, the area of interoception in neuroscience is your your sense of your heartbeat, your breathing, your gut, everything that goes on inside your body, hugely determines your sense of self. And also how you perceive what is going on around you and how you act in given situations. And interception is an amazing key from the science to create technology that enhances the emotional part of our cognitive system. Effectively, emotions are a form of superpower, if you like. There's interceptive awareness and control. So most of us cannot tell what our heartbeat is beating at. I don't know, mine right now, yours, can you tell if it's 55 beats per minute, 65 without, you know, having to take your pulse? Well, some people can. Generally, being able to read your own body is associated with uh, higher emotional resilience and a whole bunch of good traits some exceptional people like long-time Buddhist meditators can actually shift the interoceptive signals. They can shift, for example, their heartbeat at will. You know, I can shift mine by jumping up and down. It's going to go faster. If I lie down for a long time, it's going to slow down. Some people can just do it. Now, your perception of your heartbeat affects how you perceive the world. If my heartbeat is beating fast, I'm most likely to think that I'm either excited or anxious. That again goes back to William James that asked the basic question, is your heart thumping because you're afraid or are you afraid because your heart is thumping? And it's actually a feedback loop between those. If for some reason your heart is thumping, you might feel anxious, And you might interpret what goes around you as this must be a scary situation. And all that was going on is your just heart decided to beat faster. So people with cardiac problems do have this. They can have anxiety attacks. Nothing is going on. It's just that their heart decides to just go fast at times by by itself. And by the way, it's not just Zen meditators. Apparently traders, quite a, a lot of them are pretty special in how their interoceptive system works, which seems to have something to do with how they can make decisions in the crazy environment they're in. So bottom line of all of this is that your body and your awareness and understanding of it is powerful. Being able to connect with your emotions in this way is straightforwardly a cognitive enhancement. It also is very good for your mental health. And interestingly, you would think that this is like the body and, you know, what can you do about it other than become a long-term Zen meditator or just be blessed with good genes. You can hack the system. That's what we've done in our company. So I'll tell you about this, which what it is, is really a heartbeat. So this feels like a heartbeat. You feel it on the inside of your wrist where you would normally feel your pulse. And you can control if it goes fast or slow. What happens if you Trying to go slow, your brain perceives a slow heartbeat at the right place where your heartbeat would normally be. Your brain thinks, oh, heartbeat, pulse point, that must be my heartbeat. My heartbeat is slow. I must be calm. You actually go to a calm state even when you're under pressure, even when you're in a stressful situation. You can also go the other way. You can make it go fast. Then you can feel excited or more energetic. It's not really unlike what you do with music so when you put slow music it calms you down when you put fast music you, on the treadmill you're gonna run faster what the, the music tempo does is actually mimics a, a heartbeat and we are wired to regulate to a heartbeat we do that as embryos in the mother's womb we regulate to um, a heartbeat and in this case what what is kind of technology does is really intervene in this feedback loop between the brain and the body to shift first the physiological state to what you want it to be and that shifts your state of mind to what you want it to be which is often what most people want it to be is to be cool under pressure because there seems to be so much pressure feeling steady and balanced is it just opens up so many more things that you can do at that point this is an example of the point um, I want to make today, which is that you can look at technology as machines being more computer-like, more machine-like, always doing certain things faster, and so on. But you can also look at a direction of the future of technology, where you focus on what is it that really makes us human, powered by the science that understands how our human abilities really function and how you can break them down into what exactly goes on in the body and how to interface with what goes in the body, and then create technology that enhances what makes us human. When you're in that direction, then instead of the usual optimization of, here's a gamification thing so I can grab your attention so that you can stay on this longer, The things to optimize for, if you like, are very different. And they are qualities that we all identify as being human. And the key ones is agency and play. The technology that hijacks your attention actually removes agency from you. Technology that reconnects you to your emotions and enhances that part that increases agency. And with agency comes the sense of power, ability, and you can go ahead with your decision making. Together with that, because these things come together, is play. And with play, we mean the lightness that comes when you understand that you shouldn't, not everything is as serious as you might want it to be. There is the pleasure, the joyfulness, the, the play that gives you courage to attack harder problems, and agency and play together is a powerful combination and one that is driven by our emotional system. So, these two very human qualities, based on the science, working at the level of embodiment with tech that is not about screens and data, but it is about becoming part of your own body, takes us to a different place because it enhances what makes us human. So the place where I would take a bet that our next coevolution is going to come from is technology that lets us, if you like, grow emotional thumbs. And that is because this is a very powerful half of who we are that has mostly been ignored. It's often even been considered as something to be suppressed, the emotions, but it's actually the thing that differentiates us from machines at this point and the place where we have the most gains to to go searching for in the technologies that we are creating.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.